Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today, and with communion served shortly in our gathering, we will not have children's worship during this time together. So moms and dads, allow this to be an opportunity. Let's allow it to be an opportunity to, to teach and to show and to come alongside and to be patient with our kids that they might grow up to know and to love and to follow Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. We continue our series from the book of Ephesians, coming to Ephesians chapter 5 today, focusing in on verses 3 through 7. I want to share a message with you today titled Counterfeit Gods. And I want us to back up and and read verses 1 through 7 to set the context and flow of what we hear this morning. So as you find your place there in Ephesians chapter 5, Go ahead and join me standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any of, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Would you pause with me for prayer? Oh Lord, we pause together collectively. Say now, Lord, that we want to hear from you, that we want you to lead us and to speak to us and to give us wisdom and discerning your message for us, Lord, that we might faithfully worship and follow after Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of Paul's clear themes is that Christians should be distinct from the world, that our lives should look different from the surrounding culture. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks, that we as we've pressed into this particular book. That was true in the first century, and it's true in the 21st century, and everyone in between. And that's because, that's because God has accomplished something extraordinary for us. He has accomplished something incredible for His people and for the glory of His name. And Paul has spent Three chapters unpacking that, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Jesus, God has rescued us and redeemed us. He's adopted us and He's forgiven us fully. He's forgiven us all of our sins and marked us with His Holy Spirit, claiming us as His own, as His own people, as His own children. He's given us peace, peace with God and peace with each other as fellow believers. And this is... God's work. He has done this. He has accomplished it. His his work for us and in us, according to His eternal plan, to set apart a people who would be His people and who would live for Him, for His 
glory. You see, God's people are set apart from the world and set free from idolatry. We see that right here in our text and, and elsewhere in God's word that God sets a people apart. He, he sets us apart from the world and sets us free from idolatry. Meaning this, meaning that before we were his people, and there is a before date for all of us. Before we were his people, we were just like the world, practicing idolatry all the time, always worshiping and living for something other than God, always setting our hearts, affections, and deepest delights on something other than the living God. Now, an idol is anything more important to you than God is. And so we may react a bit and say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't worship, haven't worshipped, didn't worship other gods, but an idol is anything that's more important to us than, than God himself. In fact, Tim Keller says this, he says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. You see, we worshipped idols and sometimes we still do. But according to God's word, according to Romans chapter 6, we were slaves to sin, meaning we happily chased after whatever the world and our flesh said that we should, but no longer. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the message of the scriptures for the people of God. No longer. That's not who we are anymore. No longer. For now in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 7, because Jesus took the penalty of our sin, all of it. Every bit of it. He took it upon himself, clearing our guilt before God now and forever. So in essence, Paul says, because Christ gave himself up for use so that God could forgive you and set you apart as his holy people, giving you peace with him, don't live like you still belong to the world. Don't continue chasing after those idols. Don't live like he's not the one for you. But among you, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for who? For God's holy people. Notice these instructions are explicitly for believers. But among you, it's assumed the world's going to act this way. In fact, sexual immorality and greed, the specific sins that are mentioned in today's text, are the same ones that Paul identified in chapter 4, verse 19, as particularly characteristic of unbelievers. But in the church, among God's people, among the saved, a culture should prevail that is wholly different, that is utterly different from the surrounding culture, one that's no longer characterized by self-indulgence and idolatry, namely the idols of sex and money. Right? In, in these five verses, Paul repeatedly and thoroughly calls God's people to beware of two common idols, two common idols, sex and money. It was true in Paul's day, and as I'm sure you know, it's also true in our day. This message is not random. Paul's words are not random. He's 
He's not chasing rabbits here. In fact, in verses 3, 4, and 5, there's structure. And there's repetition. There's three lists, three vice lists, each with three terms to describe the sins that Paul's readers should avoid. The first list, verse 3, immorality, impurity, greed, describes behaviors. The second list, verse 4, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking describe sins of speech. And then the third list, verse 5, immoral, impure, and greedy, describe people who practice these things. And all of them, all of them implying immorality or greed with the primary focus being on sexual immorality. In fact, all the terms in verse 4 describing sins of speech imply such connotations, sexual connotations. They're rare words. They're only used here in all of the New Testament. And so what is Paul saying? Paul is saying for, for people of God, for God's people, not even a hint. Don't fool around with it. Jo- don't joke about it. Don't play with it. Don't watch it or hang out where, where they do. The word for immorality here is pornea. You can hear the connection to our word for pornography. It refers generally to any sexual activity outside of, of marriage. Paul's writing to a, a people living where prostitution was an accepted part of pagan religion and where people often hosted banquets filled with drunkenness and immorality. Now, such may not be the case on your street, in your neighborhood. It may or may not be, but there's no doubt pornography is more readily accessible now than ever before. And if we don't know this, we have our heads stuck in the sand. It's part of hit TV series. It's accessed in hotel rooms and in living rooms, in corporate offices and in dorm rooms, and on smartphones outside the middle school locker room. It is rampant. And God says we're to run from it and every other hint of immorality, for such is not fitting for those who've been purchased by the costly blood of Jesus Christ. For according to the Bible... The only fitting place, the only right place, the only God-ordained and God-glorifying place to enjoy the good gift of physical intimacy is in the context of marriage. A covenant commitment between one man and one woman depicting Christ's love and care and unshakable commitment to His bride, the church itself. Pornography and immorality are absolutely rampant in our day, not just in the world, but also among those who belong to Jesus. Certainly don't say this from a place of condemnation or self-righteousness. God knows the depth of my own sin and idolatry. And for me to stand before you and to pretend that I'm not susceptible to this idol of our day is utter foolishness. But I think that's why Paul is saying this in the way that he is to believers. He's driving this point home because he knows how susceptible we are to immorality and greed in church. Though our position, our position on these things must be unwavering. Our posture toward those who've fallen into such sin must be one of patience and love. 
of gentleness and care, longing to see men and women, boys and girls, repent and experience the deep, deep goodness and grace of God and satisfaction, delight in God above all else once again. And so hear me say this morning, if you're struggling with such sin, let's be honest that in a room this size in our day, statistics would say there are probably dozens in this place, in this family, struggling with such sin. If you're struggling with such sin in your own life, in your own mind, in your own heart, in any capacity, know that members and ministers of this faith family stand ready to listen and to love and to care and to support you in seeing God deliver you from that stronghold and to satisfy the deepest desires of your hearts in Him once again. This warning, this text, isn't just against the idol of immorality. It certainly is. That is absolutely clear. But also the idol of greed. Scholar Brian Rosner says this. He says, The greedy are those with a strong desire to acquire and keep for themselves more and more money and possessions because they love, trust, and obey wealth rather than God. The sin of greed is not just for the wealthy. Sometimes perhaps we think of the wealthy. It doesn't discriminate against various Classes or economic conditions. All are susceptible to greed. Frank Thielman says the greedy person is an idolater then because wealth rather than God is the greedy person's security and the object of his or her love and devotion. Friend, where is your security? Where's the object of your devotion? Where do these things lie for you? What is it that you desire more than anything else? See, left to ourselves, it will not be Christ. On our own, left to ourselves, it it will not be Jesus. But praise God, we've not been left to ourselves, right? Isn't that the gospel? By God's rescuing grace, may Jesus be the desire of our hearts. May He be... Our ultimate satisfaction may be found in Him. That's the invitation of the gospel. To receive God's grace, rejecting these counterfeit gods and experiencing the all-sufficient and all-satisfying one. Church, we live in a day and time in which sex and money are counterfeit gods. Worship day and night in the hearts of countless people. But as those who know the grace of God, as those who've been rescued by the Almighty God, may the Spirit of God protect us from ever giving these common idols the position in our hearts that belongs to Christ alone. Right? In Christ alone, my hope is found. For we are no longer lost and dead and hopelessly helpless. But we are fellow citizens with God's people. That's what Ephesians says. Chapter 3, verse 19. We are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. We're part of the family. Are you a citizen of Christ's kingdom? Are you a member of His household? For of this you can be sure. Paul says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You see, Paul wants us to beware of two common idols, and he wants us to know, I think, that there's only two possible 
citizenships, Christ's kingdom, or Satan's domain. It's one or the other. Only two possible citizenships. If you've ever moved houses, then you know what it's like to try to change your address and all the places that that is. And you know what it's like to receive somebody else's mail that doesn't live at your address and perhaps not to get some things that you need to receive at your own address. Where's your address? Where's your permanent dwelling place? Where's your place of residency and citizenship? It's either in Christ's kingdom or it's in Satan's domain. You're either in one or the other. Who's your Lord? Where's your citizenship? Speaking to those with faith in Jesus Christ, Paul would confidently say in Philippians chapter 3, he'd say, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. It's in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will one day be like His glorious body. This is good news. Because it means that even though we continue to struggle with sin here in this life, and we do, Paul did. In fact, toward the end of his life, he would say, I continue to wrestle. I do what I don't want to do. What a wretched man that I am, right? Even though we struggle with sin, we continue to fight the battle of sin and temptation and the old ways of the flesh and the world. One day, we are going to be like Christ in the way that we will no longer struggle with sin. We will no longer give the affection of our heart to something other than Jesus. Because our citizenship is in heaven and God is working on us and will continue working on us until He gathers us in the presence of Christ in a place of no more sin and sorrow, idolatry, greed, immorality, none of these things, but only but only perfect fellowship and provision in the presence of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's whole point, I think, here, that we've been rescued. We've been delivered. We've been saved. We've been forgiven and set free, covered by the blood of Jesus, and granted membership in His eternal family because of God's amazing grace. So believer, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for His saving grace. He's rescued you. The blood of Jesus... That we'll remember and reflect on in just a few moments through communion. The blood of Jesus covers you. You are counted among His people, set free and set apart now and forever, given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore, as we heard earlier, at peace with God. So brothers and sisters, let's give thanks to God. You see, our, our antidote to foolish and obscene speech, the corrective... For perverse joking is thanksgiving. For such focuses our minds on Christ and replaces self-indulgent, self-promoting speech with speech oriented toward God. Soon, Paul will say in the latter part of this chapter, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Say these sort of things again and again and again. Get rid of this and replace it with this. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. 
In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, God's people are set apart and set free from idolatry. This is good news. It is newsworthy of giving thanks to Almighty God, the God who saves. But let's remember, not all. Paul is clear about this. The Bible is clear about this. Not all are God's people. Many remain entrapped, ensnared in idolatry, living for self and characterized by the very wickedness that once reigned in our own hearts before Christ redeemed us. God's people are set apart and set free from idolatry, but God's wrath is real and coming on the wicked. His wrath is real and coming on the wicked. On all who are not counted as his people. On those who are still defined by their sin. In our day, many who call themselves believers, many who call themselves Christians, scoff at any notion of future judgment, of any eternal hell. And yet the word says here, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, the Bible's not saying, and we need to hear this clearly, the Bible's not saying that all who struggle with immorality and greed will experience God's wrath. For if it was, you can rest assured that this preacher and everyone else gathered here is headed straight to hell. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about believers who struggle with sin and often fail, but he's talking about those still dead in their sins and defined by their disobedience to God. In similar language to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and you can go back and read that text, I think implies that that is the case. Friends, God is a God of mercy. He's a God of patience. He's a God of love, of steadfast love, of compassion. The Bible is absolutely clear about these things. God is described in this way again and again and again. God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is how God identifies himself when he explains who he is. But the Bible is also clear that God's wrath is real. He is a sovereign king and a perfect judge and his wrath is coming on the wicked like do. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? This text confronts us in our shallow view of human depravity and beckons us to hear the Bible, hear the Bible on our sin and God's judgment. Like listen to the word to hear what God has to say about these things. And so when we gather for worship, We open the scriptures. We come together as church family. We open the word. We read the word because we believe this book to be God's word. When it comes to the coming judgment of God, do we really believe this book? Do we believe the word? Do we believe what it says more than our own intuition? More than the mantra of our day. More than the message of our peers. You see, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your flesh says. It doesn't matter what your friends say or what the culture says or what your parents say or even what the preacher says. It matters what God says. And through his servant, through his servant, God has said, as for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins. Chapter 2, verse 1, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. All of us. Doing what? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Friends, that's what the Bible says about our sin condition before God. That we deserve the judgment of the just judge because we've worshipped idols. Idols like sex and money and power and other fleeting pleasures and counterfeit gods rather than the real thing. Rebellious, idolatrous, self-indulgent and deserving God's judgment. That's who we are. And yet, because of His great love for us, do you remember that verse? Be a good one to know. A good one to commit to memory. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, we were deserving of wrath, but because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Deserving wrath and yet recipients of God's great love, shown mercy, given grace, made alive, set apart and set free to the coming, the living, the dying, the substitutionary dying and rising, and now reigning of Jesus the Christ. Paul says in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, all of them, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So friends, hear the Bible. Let's hear the Bible on sin and judgment. But... But see the Savior, see the Savior who took our sin and God's judgment. See the Savior, see Jesus, the one who took our sin and God's judgment. For that is the gospel. Good news for sinners who trust in God's gracious provision of a Savior. Given peace with God. Friends, this is good news. Given peace with God, called his children and indwelt by his Holy Spirit, who the text says is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul's saying you're either of the world or you're in Christ. If you're still of the world, then of course you're going to act like the world. Dead in sins, under the sway of Satan, following the ways of the world and of flesh. But if you're in Christ, are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, then by God's grace, you're going to live and think and act like one who's been redeemed. One who's been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So where are you? Where are you? Where are you before God? Are you enslaved to sin? Or have you been set free in Jesus Christ? Freed by God's grace. Oh friend, if you are enslaved to sin, don't you want to be set free? Don't you want to be free from it? Don't you want to be fully forgiven before a holy and righteous and eternal God now and forever and ever? The Bible says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No ifs, ands, 
buts about it. Everyone who calls on the Lord, everyone who calls on Christ to be Lord and Savior will be saved. Call upon His name today. Call upon Christ today and be set free, be forgiven forever and ever. Sin is serious. It's serious. The Word's clear about this. Turn from it and trust in the one who paid for it. Be saved today by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop worshiping counterfeit gods and start worshiping the living God. Isn't that the call of our text? To receive salvation and then to simply live as those who've been saved? So friends, since since God has saved us, let's reject our old idols. Let's live for Him. He has saved us from such. He has delivered us. He has rescued and redeemed us. And because He has, because He has saved us, let's reject these old idols and let's live for Him. Do you pray with me? Oh Lord, we do pause together collectively here and now. Lord, to acknowledge that you have saved us. Lord, that you have sent your son Jesus to be our redeemer. Lord, to live a perfect life so that he could die the death that we deserve. Lord, in our place as the perfect lamb of God, the perfect substitute who takes away our sins. Father, we acknowledge today that it has been done. It has been accomplished. Our sin has been paid for. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. And so, Father, we pray that as believers, as followers of Christ, that we would find great comfort and assurance and hope and joy and peace today, Lord, as we continue to reflect on the gospel. Father, we pray that that Christ would, would reign in our hearts fully this moment. Lord, certainly now and Always, But, Father, we pray that we would surrender and submit. And, Father, that we would worship the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts today. Father, we pray that we would look to Christ to satisfy our needs, all of them. And, Father, together, collectively, as your church, as your bride, as people saved by your grace, we say together today that you have, Christ has. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.